Easter Day here in Trinity was amazing. There was so much energy and joy and beauty and delight. Distributing communion, as I did, it seemed to me that the face of everyone who came forward was glowing. Even those who came forward in tears, they didn't need to hide what was real, but they came to communion nevertheless celebrating. What a glorious day. So however glorious Easter Day was, the resurrection is too big and too foundational to absorb in one celebration. So obviously Easter is continuing. You can hear it in the wonderful music still and the flowers are still here. And, um, the readings, did you notice that all the readings are from the New Testament today? So you're here, everything that you're hearing has to do with the mind of the church after the resurrection. And so we continue. Today, the third Sunday of Easter, it's Paul and Peter whose stories are told. Paul and Peter, each in his turn, seeing the risen Lord after the resurrection. In the first, uh, in, the, in the account from Acts about Paul, you see that iconic moment when Paul is converted. He'd been a very effective churchman and theologian who opposed Jesus. And then after his conversion, he turned all of his skill and all of his energy, which was so considerable, to serving the cause of Jesus and to articulating some of the most sublime theology that's ever been written. So that's Paul. And in the reading we just heard now, Peter's call is confirmed. And like Paul, his life changes utterly. Like Paul, he was someone with a calling before the resurrection. And he turns all of his energy and skill to serving the Lord after the resurrection. If we had time, and I think I took a little bit too much time at 8 o'clock, we could look deeply at both of their stories. But I have to remember that a preacher's got to be disciplined. It's a sermon, not a seminar, right? So, uh, let me just invite you to turn with me and uh, take a look at the sea and the fishermen, the world of Peter. John's gospel vividly draws our attention to the physical and natural details of Peter's world. You heard the interplay of nighttime and daybreak and daylight in the fishermen's work. The, uh, the luminous daybreak over the essential sea, that source of so much uh, of the local population's food. And its comforting grassy shoreline. You could almost hear the crackling charcoal fire where Jesus broils the fresh catch. And you can picture the beach where he serves the hungry fishermen the breakfast of bread and crisp fish. I was so taken by these details, which are set out as part of John's literary and spiritual purpose, that 
I went hunting on the internet for some cool background information about the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and the men who worked it. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to share, you, share with you a few elements of that uh, background information. This may be of particular interest to foodies, are there any? <laughs> or fisher people, or people who love to paddle around in boats on lakes. I think I've got you all. All right. So the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee, today in Israel known as Lake Kinneret, is really big. It's 33 miles around, 18 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's big. It's a freshwater lake. It's fed, it's fed by the Jordan River from the north and by fresh springs from down below. And then the Jordan River continues uh, uh, towards the south. Since biblical times, the Sea of Tiberias has been an important food source for the surrounding population and beyond. And the fishing industry flourished in the time of Jesus under the ruling Tetrarchs, Herod and Philip, sons of King Herod. They made big investments in the industry and provided a stable political environment for it to grow. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus states that there were more than 230 fishing boats working on the sea during that period. That's a lot of boats. The apostles Peter and Paul and their cousins were part of this robust industry. Peter owned his own boat, and he also owned a house in the city of Capernaum. An extraordinary accomplishment in a land dominated by the one percenters, by large estates and menial laborers. Now, meat is seldom named, mentioned in the Gospels. And we can assume that lamb was eaten by Jesus and his disciples at the, last, at the Passover. Fish, however, was the most important source of protein for Jesus and his followers. Fish. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asks, Which one of you would hand your son a stone when he asks for a loaf of bread, or a snake when he asks for a fish? When the disciples followed Jesus into the desert, they carried bread and fish, according to Mark. When Jesus provided food for the multitude, what was it? Loaves and fishes, according to John. So, the fishing industry around Tiberias in Jesus' day was highly profitable. But it was strenuous work and it needed major organization. In deep water fishing, the lake was over 100 feet deep, um, two or three boats would work together to set up a net between them and chase the fish into the net. And this would be done seven or eight times during the night. And by morning, the, those fishermen could bring in as much as half a ton of fish. In the busy season, according to Mark, they hired day laborers. But Peter and his partners kept their own schedule. Peter and his friends were free to start fishing when they wanted to and stop work when they wanted to. 
So, in a nutshell, they were more than simple fisher folk. They were independent, prosperous, organized, industrious, and skilled. Just the kind of people you'd want to put on vestry. <laughs> All of this I offer to illustrate that Jesus' appearance by the Sea of Galilee, by the Sea of Tiberias, as John says, did not happen in a dream world. He showed up in a practical workaday world. I suspect John focuses the real world because he couldn't be more clear that Jesus' meaning and intention is not reserved for an afterlife, but rather in the here and the now, in all its complexity. Look for Jesus in the life of the world. Behind everything, underneath and within everything, God is imminent and incarnate. God abides in us, and we abide in God. Peter and his partners, James and John, along with the disciples Thomas and Nathaniel, and two other not-named disciples, are together as evening falls. They have already seen the risen Lord, yes, but they still have to put food on the table. Peter, owner of the boat and that nice house in Capernaum, announces he's going fishing and the others go with him. Maybe there was a full moon that night and the fish could see the nets that were made of linen or flax. In any event, they caught nothing. Daybreak comes, a fiery sun rises over that great lake. Imagine the light. Gradually, it makes the full moon fade. Not far from shore in their flat-bottomed boat, they hear a man call out to them, addressing them as intimates, using a colloquial term translated here, children, other places, friends, still other places, boys. The way they used to talk decades ago. Boys, what are you doing here? Catch anything, friends? Asks Jesus, nothing. Somebody answers. Cast your net to the right side, he tells them. And with that, John recognizes Jesus and says so out loud. Hearing that, Peter does not hesitate. He throws on some clothes and jumps into the shallows and runs to Jesus. You know the rest. They drag in the large hall, 153 large fish. And Jesus makes them breakfast over the charcoal fire, serves them bread and fish. And in their eyes, there it is again, that thing that he does, like the feeding of the 5,000 after he gave the Sermon on the Mount, the miracle of water into wine at Cana, the offer of living water that never runs dry. With Jesus, everyone has food and drink. Everyone has enough. Breakfast over, 
Jesus addresses Peter three times. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Peter answers. Yes, yes. This sometimes unsteady apostle, who three times had denied even knowing Jesus after his arrest, is given the chance to reconcile. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us. Peter's original call is renewed and invested with the character of generous compassion and a sense of abundance. Tend and feed the people in imitation of your Lord. So Peter will leave fishing and devote the remainder of his life to leading the nascent Christian community with his heart and mind and soul and strength all right out there, best he can. He would lead the first generation of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and travel to the other churches developing in the region. So like Paul, we see here today, founder of the Christian church. By the way, he would always remain Simon Peter. As you'll hear in weeks to come from the account in Acts, as he had occasionally misunderstood and wavered during Jesus' lifetime, so he will on occasion again. Peter will face and occasionally cause struggles and controversy in the community. And as the tradition holds, he will at the end of his life be martyred. That's the reference of Jesus' final comment about being taken where you do not want to go. For Peter, following Jesus will mean living and dying like his Lord. Nevertheless, this self-employed, independent, commercial fisherman emerges as the leader of the primitive Jesus movement. This guy's loyalty and initiative and forceful character will serve his community well. On this rock, the church was founded. So, let us keep the feast. In John's Gospel, at the Last Supper, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Unlike the other Gospel writers, John does not highlight the institution of the Holy Eucharist on that night. Not because he doesn't highly prize the Holy Eucharist, on the contrary but because he sees Jesus' whole life and ministry as Eucharistic. Washing the disciples' feet was another sacramental way to teach about self-giving from your substance. Jesus' generosity is the pattern that we seek to emulate, sharing from our abundance with the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the newcomer, the troubled, the outsider. That's the commission. Not just thoughts and prayers, but concretely real as food and drink. Jesus turned water into wine, offered living water, multiplied five barley loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. 
Jesus sharing from his very substance the sacramental bread of life. When he commands Peter and, by extension, us, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, it is an invitation to us personally, communally, socially, and politically to let go of grasping and greed so that the good things may be shared with those who also need them. The good things. An invitation to gather around the Eucharistic table and keep the feast has that reverberation throughout our entire lives. That's good personal practice, essential domestic practice, and redemptive social and political practice. Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John by everything he does and by his words about what is written there as koinonia, the Greek word for communion, that he elaborates as mutual indwelling, a fancy name for sharing together in life, in wholesome, freeing, generative ways, sometimes tagged as agape love. It really is a revolutionary concept. The seed, in fact, of later political understanding, of economic and social commonwealth, with the common good as the point of political life. That kind of conception has grown out of the original idea of koinonia, sharing your wealth in common. So we do well to practice koinonia with renewed attention, for it offers redress and remedy for the current political malaise. And that's what we do here when we come together. What we practice here, we can bring to the world. Because we share the Eucharistic meal, one bread, one cup, we become one body Christ's body in the world, the real world. Receive this food, we might hear Jesus say, and then, in turn, share your food with others. You know, if Peter could do it, we can too. Feed my lambs.